Looking for inspiration to go on extraordinary journeys? UB Cool Talks features the inspiring stories of Red Bull athletes, Olympic champions, National Geographic explorers, and others that will make you want to live your life to the fullest. What are you waiting for? Start listening today. UB Cool Talks is the podcast arm from ubicool.com, the fastest growing online adventure booking platform offering over 70 destinations through partnerships with over 650 companies. In today's UB Cool Talk, we chat with the British cycling champion, Jonathan Schubert, where he shares his incredible story from cycling around the world and now has his sights set on breaking a world record by cycling a grueling 1,300 kilometers in under 48 hours. Get ready to be inspired. Up here you can see, obviously you're all aware of what I'm about to do, and Medina's just mentioned it, that in a week's time I'm going to attempt to set a world record cycling from here to Salala. Um, it was something I thought up in the summer, and with something like this, if you want to take it seriously and you really want to do it properly, you can't do it by yourself. You need to have a huge team supporting you. Um, and up there you can see the five sponsors I've got who are backing me for this. And of all those sponsors, Medina and UB Cool have been um, absolutely the title sponsor, the most supportive of everyone. And it wouldn't be the professional outfit that it, it is becoming and it will be on the day without Medina's help. Um, so I'm, I'm eternally grateful. And I've also got um, Prismic Media, Media coming over from Kuwait to make a documentary about it. Uh, Husak are lending us a uh, vehicle and driver for the, the attempt. Um, Oman Bike Shop are behind us. And it's the Ultramarathon Cycling Association who are based in the States who will um, have actually allowed us to train two race officials here in Oman so that we can make sure it's, it's ratified as an official world record. Now, I've, I've talked many times before about um, traveling around the world, and so I was trying to decide what I wanted to, to talk to you about tonight, and I'm actually going to break it down into three parts. And something that Medina just said, and some conversations that I've had over the last few days inspired me to tell you about something I've never really talked to anyone about before. And Medina just said she's 200% sure that I'm going to do this. And then my friend Dan is sitting at the back there, and, and he goes, doesn't, he said to me the other night, doesn't it phase you? You know, you're so confident you can do this. Well, I'm a science teacher, and the way I approach things is very analytical. And the fear never enters my mind. I, I calculate. I know how many watts I can hold. I know what speed I can do. I know what intensity to hold. And, and all these things on paper add up, and it says, all right, I'm going to be in Salala in 36 hours. And then the... the um, the, the doubt doesn't cross my mind. I've, I've proved to myself in the past what I'm capable of, and I know my body can do this. So I just have to go out there and execute. I know the training I have to do and everything to get there. This man here is called Dr. Gordon Wright. Uh, now, where's, where's Khalil? He's at the back there. Okay, Khalil, he, he refers to me as Mudarib John, which in Arabic means Coach John. So there's a few of the, few of the lads here in Oman who I coach. And I suppose, Khalil, this is um, Mudaribi Gordon. This, this is my coach. This man here was an amazing coach. He coached Nicole Cook, if you've ever heard her name, to Olympic gold in Beijing in the women's cycling road race. He's coached numerous national champions in the UK. And I had the fortune, when I was about 24, of being taken under his wing. 
Um, lovely man. Interesting. We've had a very interesting relationship, though. He lost two children. He lost one child at the age of about 17 to cancer, and the other child was a stillbirth. And he's such a warm man. He loves to, to bring people, draw people in. And he's, because he doesn't have his own children, uh, he, he takes cyclists and he puts them under his wing and he, he treats them like his children. And, and especially if you've got some talent and he sees something in you, he very quickly snaps you up. And under his guidance, um, I had a huge amount of success racing in the UK. And I was starting to get really, really good. And then I said to Gordon, I said, Gordon, I'm, I'm, I want to go and cycle around the world. And he's from a different era, a different generation, and he's never traveled much. It wasn't the done thing. And he was getting excited about the season that was about to start because we had this amazing team. There were three guys in between us. We thought we were going to become national champions. And I said to him, I said, Gordon, I've got to go now. This time in my life, there couldn't be a better time. I have to go. Um, and he got quite upset with me. And he wouldn't really talk to me after that um, at the time, okay? But I'm going to tell you later how we sort of reconnected. And I was in touch with him a lot towards the end of my journey, and he said a couple of quite profound things to me. Because I said to him when I was finishing my journey, I want to come back and I want to win the British 24-hour time trial. And he said, okay, one of two things is going to happen. He always told me I was very unconventional the way I trained. He said, either... You've been pedaling really slowly with all this luggage for months and months and months. You're not going to be able to convert that into speed and you'll fall flat on your face and fail. Or you're going to break the national record. And it turned out that I rode the third furthest distance of all time on a very difficult course. So had it been a quicker course, I think maybe he was right. And the other thing he said to me when I'd finished as well, which is why I'm telling you this now, he said, becoming a national champion will impact you for the rest of your life. It will influence everything you do from now on. And I didn't really realize that quite as much at the time. And now I'm standing here and I'm able to show you all these sponsors who are helping me. If I hadn't broken British records, if I hadn't become a national champion, none of these people would have listened to me. So he was right all along. The things I want to do, what I'm attempting to do in a week's time, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you if I hadn't done this in the past. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the journey that took me to here. This is my best friend, uh, Imran, okay? And I met Imran when I was at university. He's a little bit older than me. Completely different walks of life. And we just found um, a kindred spirit in one another. And we've, we've been off cycle touring, traveling, doing all sorts of things um, together. And we rode Land's End to John O'Groats, which is from the bottom of the UK right to the top. And we thought, what could be bigger than that? We loved it so much. So we sat down. And we started planning. We thought, let's do this even bigger coast-to-coast -coast journey. This is what we came up with. Let's try and cycle all the way from the shores of France to the bottom of Singapore. Oh, it was incredibly exciting. I'm sure lots of people have exciting dreams, but often they just remain pipe dreams. Um, and I think it really helped having one another there because we were actually living at different end, in different ends of the country. And work was getting difficult. You get sucked into work, and you don't have as much time to think about these things. Um, and it took quite a, quite a while to plan, but we had a date and we worked towards it after a, two years of conceiving the idea. And we actually did it. We, we managed to pack our stuff up. And you don't just do it overnight. There was a lot of planning. 
Um, this was the 5th of May, a date that's ingrained in my mind, 5th of May 2013. And this is the street that I lived on. Uh, my father's taking a photo there. And that's us setting off originally to cycle to Singapore. We were very naive at this point. You know, I said, I'm going to cycle around the world. Didn't know what that meant. I would only be able to find that out by actually doing it. Um, we left the White Cliffs of Dover behind, and this is where the journey really began, when we got to France. So the plan was, the mantra was, no other mode of transport, no buses, no boats, no nothing. We're just staying on our bikes, and we're going to pedal all the way to Singapore. OK, so this was great fun at first, bit of camping in France, done this kind of stuff before. Nothing was, was really phasing us. Um, Imran is quite a devout Muslim, so um, we were stopping multiple times during the day so he could pray, he was doing his ablutions there. And I think spirits are quite high when we, when we set off. I'm going to tell you a few little, little exciting stories, things that happened to us as we travelled through um, Western Europe and Eastern Europe. What was this? Two weeks in, uh, we came across, well they found us actually, two guys from the circus found us. And... Uh, they said, why don't you come stay with us? And we spent a, a week living with a traveling circus, which was great, because Imran's a card magician, and um, these people were just absolutely nuts. And I thought, this, this is the best thing I've ever done. I've, I've set off to cycle around the world, and now I'm living with a traveling circus. Um, what a great start. Then we started to head over the Alps, and it started to get cold, and it was um, still, still May, still wet, still cold, especially when you go higher. We crossed through Europe, we'd, we'd cycled toward through Europe before. Um, we were in our comfort zone, that wasn't, that wasn't too bad, we could cope with that. Then we got to Slovenia and that meant Western Europe. So things were about to change. Uh, this was Croatia and we kept this man here, big, powerful, stern looking man. We kept seeing posters of his face all over the, these, these country roads and we thought, oh, he must be a criminal or something. They wanted posters everywhere. And then we get to this town and there he is, surrounded by all these, these crowds and these supporters. And it turned out that this man, uh, Jelko, he was running for his election uh, for, the, for the town mayor. And uh, we turned up, and he invited us for food, and he dropped everything he was doing. He was far more interested in us than his election campaign. He let all his, his minions carry on with that. And uh, so we went drinking with this man, and then he, he bought us a, a stay in a beautiful mansion for the night. And... Uh, just couldn't believe the hospitality we were already starting to, to experience. I mean, already in Austria before this, Switzerland, all these countries, people had been taking us in and feeding us. It was amazing. When things started to change, get a little bit scary. We were outside of our comfort zone. This, this was when we were entering Bosnia. And a lot of cycle tourists, when they do these round-the-world routes, they, they stay further north. They go through um, Hungary and Bulgaria. But we were, we were of the era when we were children growing up watching the television and seeing these, these conflicts playing out in former Yugoslavia. And, and we were fascinated because we hadn't heard about it for years. We wanted to go back there and learn a bit more about, about these wars and what, what had happened. Um, but I have to admit, it was very chilling and it was very eerie when we, when we approached the border of Bosnia. These buildings were all... There's a church here. Um, you can see some of the mortar fire, the, the shell fire, the, the bullet holes on the buildings. Um, and this building here had sinks hanging off the walls and um, 
the whole village was like this, absolutely, it was shelled, shelled to bits. And the, it was just, it was like a ghost town. And when you did come across a settlement, the poverty was rife. There were just little sort of um, lights hanging off wires across the streets and there was no money. And um, it, was, it was a bit scary. We couldn't communicate with the people. We didn't really know. We hadn't actually, this was just before the border. We hadn't even got into Bosnia. Bosnia itself, though, is beautiful. Um, these are the Balkans, beautiful mountains. People seemed to be pretty friendly, kept asking us to come and join them for things like chopping wood. Um, there were landmines still from the conflict, so these areas were taped off. I will attest that Bosnian honey is the most delicious honey I've ever eaten. If you're ever in the Balkans, go and, go and try and find Bosnian honey. Absolutely amazing. There were lots of signs of, um, some, of that, some of you that might uh, be quite poignant. You might know what that was about. A mass genocide of um, a lot of Muslims in in Bosnia, there was a, there was a lot of evidence of the war. E even in Sarajevo, the capital, when we arrived, you have a, a brand new building next to a dilapidated building. This is a tower block. It's been burnt down, shelled, still years on, not repaired. Um, significance of the tram in Sarajevo? It's the first city in the world to use trams. Thought I'd take a photo. Uh, now this, this picture is probably the least inspiring of all the pictures that I'm, I've put up so far. But this is the picture I'm probably going to tell you the most about. Um, we were up in, in the hills close to Serbia, maybe a day or so away. We'd been in Bosnia for about a week. We'd been making a documentary, we'd been filming and, and learning about the conflict. Um, and it was maybe 9 o'clock at night and we were looking for somewhere to sleep. And this is the only photo I have of where we chose to sleep that night. Um, you can see there's some, some straw, um, manure, whatever, on the floor. They clearly kept animals in this, this old building. And there was no one around. We were on in the hillside. So we thought, oh, let's put our, put our tents inside here. And we're putting our tents up. And then my friend Imran, he says to me, I think there's someone watching us. On, on the hill, opposite. Uh, there's a house over there. I think they're watching us. I said, oh, don't, don't worry about it. I was tired. I said, let's, let's get our tents up and go to sleep. So the tents are up. And then we hear this noise. And we looked at each other. Did you hear that? The door slams. And we hear this shouting. Someone had driven up in a car, skidded up in a car, very fast. Ah, ah, it's Slavic. Nothing we could understand. And we looked at each other going, oh my goodness, what, what's going on? And then there's this almighty explosion. And the man had fired a gun into the building. And it whistled past, it was a small building, it whistled past Imran's ear, hit the wall, and the mortar from the back of the wall hit his face and cut his face. We couldn't believe what we, what we got ourselves into. It was, it was a, a feeling of utter disbelief. Didn't know what to do. We both dived for cover. I dived into a window frame. I thought, if I try and run, it's probably going to shoot me. So quite quickly, I thought the best policy is, you know, confront him. So I was just trying to shout the little bit of Slavic I knew. knew. I was just saying, tourist, tourist. And I came out with my hands up. And there's a young man in his early 20s waving a pistol at me. I go up to him. He makes me kneel down. He rips the head torch off my head, he's screaming at me, and I feel the barrel of the gun in the back of my skull. 
And he knows that, that there's someone else in there. I said, Imran, you need to come out. So Imran comes out. We're both kneeling down, and this man is very, very angry. And um, I think we both thought that that was, that was the end. We, we really... But in, in, in disbelief, how could we have got to that point? And, and why like this? And, uh, but you never know. You know, you hear stories of what happens to people when they have a gun put to their head. Do they start crying? Do they start um, urinating, defecating? For us, we were just very calm and focused, and we were trying to diffuse the situation. And I think there was, there was clarity of thought. Um, and under his breath, Imran was saying his final prayer. As a Muslim, if you think you're going to die, you need to say your final prayer. And, and eventually, the man, he, he calmed down a bit took the gun away from us and then uh, my friend Imran he said oh, salam alaikum and we'd just gone into the orthodox Christian part of Bosnia and they absolutely passionately hate the Muslims um, I thought okay now, now I am dead now I'm dead um, he got angry again he calmed down again we showed him our tents he was still carrying this gun he went across to the other side of the hill this house and uh, Clearly, someone had called him, and then he came back to us, couldn't speak English, but sort of gestured, go back to sleep, go back to sleep. I've never packed my tent so fast in my life. Um, and we just pedaled as fast as we could through the night for about half an hour, and then we stopped to sort of film each other, and wow, wow, wow you need to record what just happened, and it was, it was, it was quite shaking. Um, and Imran, Imran said, that's it, I've, I've had enough, I'm going home, I'm going home. And I think for me, I, was, I wasn't thinking like that, I was thinking, well, that was horrifying, but... I've read all these stories about other people who cycle around the world. I've never heard that happen to anyone, so surely that's as bad as it gets, unless you die. So it's only going to get better from here on in. But we did, didn't talk to each other much for the next couple of days, and we had a bit of a sickly feeling in our stomachs. Um, eventually, we reached Turkey. This was really exciting. It's the country I lived in when I was, when I was younger. Uh, my father used to work there. And it was strange because we went in and we went to um, the petrol stations at night and first night there's a restaurant there and I'm able to order my food in Turkish and it, it was, I don't know how many years on since I'd lived there and I, st I could still remember to converse to a small extent which was quite exciting. Um, but it was a long road, we had, I think we had about 300 miles to get to Istanbul which was where we were meeting, meeting my parents. For me this, this sent goosebumps all up my back and my arms. I saw saw this view, I was with Imran, and I said to him, Imran, is that Asia? And he, he always calls me John Boy. He said, John Boy, that's Asia. And it meant that we had just cycled across an entire continent. We'd just crossed the width of Europe. Um, and that was, that was, for me, that was incredibly exciting. Uh, enjoyed Istanbul, the food was good. Saw my parents, spent some time there. It's a beautiful city, spent about 10 days there. Um, there were some protests going on at the time and we went to check that out. We got chased down some streets with tear gas and after being held at gunpoint, it was all, I think our fear levels had been raised, raised up here. It was all quite a bit of fun, um, but quite good. Does anyone know, know what that is? It is the Bosphorus. This was one of our biggest bugbears in the whole journey because I told you earlier on, we wanted to cycle from France all the way to Singapore. There are two bridges that go across the Bosphorus and there's a boat. Now you're not allowed to cycle across the bridges. So we thought, well, how are we going to do this? Let's try and catch the police off guard. Go really, they, they, they man the borders at either end. Let's go really, really fast um, and try and get across it, which we tried 
and they chased us down quite quickly and forced us to get on a bus for about 500 meters. And we said, no, no, and the, and the man's showing us the rule book, unless you're doing 50 kilometers an hour. We, said, we can do 50 kilometers an hour. <laughs> so no, 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 it says motorbike only. Um, so we got to the other side, and then Imran was going, we need to go back tonight. We need to try again. <laughs> I can't have my journey broken. But no, um, unfortunately, we had to take a, a small bus journey there. Next time, Yuri, <laughs> when you're doing it, I'll remind you of that. So then we were in Asia, um, and it was quite a different, different atmosphere, different scene, very different to, um, to Europe. It got warmer, uh, hitting 45 degrees there. And there's a nice picture of uh, Imran's shirt and the salt that's building up on it. Um, so we, we carried on through Turkey, we went through Georgia, we went through Armenia. This has been some of the mountains in Armenia. And by this point, we're getting quite familiar with the life on the road, looking after ourselves, living wild. Beautiful monastery we cycled, cycled to there. The mountains are getting higher. We're at 2,500 meters now. And this is just before we drop down to Iran. Um, and this is one last country I'm going to tell you a little bit about before. I talked to you about the hardest challenge I face when going around the world. So this is the border between Armenia and Iran. Very mountainous. Really, really beautiful once we'd, once we'd crossed it. Um, we were told by people with British passports and other nationalities who had Iranian visas, it was very difficult for us to get the Iranian visa, that even if you had it, it didn't guarantee you were going to get in. They might turn you away at the border. We waited there for hours but we did get in. It was really exciting, but it was a bit nerve-wracking at the same time. It was Ramadan, we weren't really sure what the rules were, how to behave, what would happen if someone saw us eating or drinking. Um, we were told that you shouldn't be on the roads at night, there's a really big drug problem, the drivers are dangerous, highest number of road fatalities in the world. We thought, oh, this would be fun, let's go and do it. Just absolutely stunning landscape. This is, this is the very first morning. Um, and I remember this man, he, um, he pulled his car over, really excited that there were these two, two guys on bicycles. Stop, stop, stop. And um, he couldn't, couldn't really speak any English, but he came and brought us a watermelon. And he wanted his photo taken with me, which is a very typical thing if you're in Iran, if you're Western and you look white and you have blonde hair. This was the first probably the point that we really started to notice, because Imran is very dark-skinned, how differently we were both treated. And it was quite upsetting for both me and for Imran. I felt very sorry for him. They say, oh, can we have our photo taken with you? I said, yeah, yeah, what about Imran? And they no, no, not interested in him. Um, and later on in Iran, it, you notice a lot, it's, it's the home of rhinoplasty and all kinds of plastic surgery. Um, and all the pictures they have are of Western people. There's no pictures to aspire to of, of Persians or, or people from that part of the world. And it, it seems a little bit strange. Um, and I felt, I felt quite bad about some of the, the things that, that they believe about us and they, how they aspire to be like us. Nonetheless, the man didn't mean anything by this. He only had good intentions and he, he gave us both some, some food. We were often getting handed watermelons, which um, not the easiest thing to carry when you're on a bicycle and someone hands you something this big. Oh, Thanks very much, where am I going to put this? 
Okay, so this was um, our first ditch attempt at trying to eat something. We thought we can't let anyone see us. We got behind a mud bank. We climbed, climbed down. We, we scoffed some food. We thought no one saw us. We're fine. We're okay. Um, and then, and then we carried on, carried on moving. The next town we got to, we tried. There were lots of people who wanted to come and practice their English with us. Um, I think it was called Jalfa, the town. And they were, they were fascinated by us. And we said, what, what's, we tried to talk to them about it. Like, what are the rules? Where can we eat? They go, oh, it's fine. You can eat in the park. Really? I said, yeah, yeah. So we went to the park. And there were loads of people sitting around eating. So it wasn't, it depended where you went. But in, in this part of Iran, it wasn't um, the taboo if you had an exemption. We were travelers. So even Imran as a traveler himself, he's, he's exempt from, from fasting. He has to catch up later on. Um, so we, we were sort of stumbling around, trying to, trying to learn the rules as we went. This man is incredible. This is a man called Akbar. And we were coming down to his city on our second night. And um, as you know, if you live here in Oman, during Ramadan, the roads before iftar, before people break their fast, they get so crazy. You know, people's blood sugar is low. They want to get home to their families. They're driving like mad people. All the cars going like the same in Iran. And then as soon as you hit sunset, nothing. Complete silence, nothing on the roads. Except for this man. He, he'd parked his car, and he was jumping up and down. Stop, stop, stop. And I was really hammering because I'd been told, don't be on the road when it's dark. And I, was, I was trying to get us into this city, into this town before it got too dark. So I slammed my brakes on. He stopped and he said, my name is Akbar. I cycle the Silk Road. I, I collect cycle tourists. Okay. Um, he said, I will help you in my town. He said, he was in his car. He said, I go home and I get my bicycle and I meet you. And we didn't really have a chance to respond and he was gone. Oh, okay, this is someone, someone wants to help us. That's great. So we, um, we kept pedaling and... Half an hour went by, we got into the town, maybe a bit longer. And then the Iranians, oh my goodness, they are so welcoming and so friendly. There were all, all sorts of people saying, follow me, come, come with me, follow my car. You can stay in my house or you can come and eat with us. And we thought, what a shame. This man seems to know something about Silk Road. Akbar seems to have vanished. He'll never find us again. And we were following these cars down these back roads. We didn't know where we were going to stay. It was dark. It was, it was lively. And then Akbar just appeared on his mountain bike. How did he find us? We had no idea how he found us. Uh, great, okay, let's follow Akbar. So he took us off and he, he took us down some more streets and then he bought us some kebabs and uh, he, said, he said, look at this. And then he pulled out these two books and in there was a photographic record of every cycle tourist who had passed through his city in the last two years. He finds every single one of them. And, we'll go, and we even recognize a few of them. Oh, we know that person, we know this one. And then, and then we kept following him. He took us somewhere else and he took us to meet two Germans he'd found earlier on in the day who were sitting very um, nervously in a restaurant. <laughs> What's going on? Have we been abducted? Um, and we sat down with them. And, it, and what transpired was that this man, he, um, he knows when you're coming because lorry drivers, taxi drivers, and people, they inform him, they tell him, because they know he wants to know, all his friends. But they don't just tell him in Iran, they tell him as far away as Bulgaria and Turkey. He makes plans, he knows you're coming. And sometimes he even knows your name. So he says, Stephen, stop, Stephen, Stephen. And someone's looking, how do you know my name? Who are you? Um, so we, we, we were sitting with him and he said, I'm not the only one. There are more like me. 
Um, okay. He, he hands us this list. He goes, all of the cities you go through, these are the contact numbers you phone. These people are all part of the Cycle Tourist Network, and they will all help you. And we said, why, why are you doing this? Do you want money? He said, no, we don't, none of us, we, we don't take money. He said, we cannot leave Iran. With our Iranian passports, it's very difficult for us to leave this country. We want to meet people from outside. This is our opportunity. We enjoy your, your tales, your conversation. Um, Iran is portrayed in a very bad light in the media. We want to show you what Iranian people are really like. And he, he too is a religious man. He said, maybe by helping you, there is a better place for me up there one day. Um, which I thought was remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And so he was, he was Akbar, he was the first of these, and he doesn't miss a person. I, I, um, I messaged him maybe a year ago. I said, Akbar, I can't remember what number I was. And he messaged me back within a minute. You were number 237 and Imran was number 238. Um, he, doesn't miss, he doesn't miss a soul. Uh, and the Germans are with us. This is the morning before we left the next day. And he led us out of town. He, this was his, actually, this was his shop. And um, not only does he have the Silk Road t-shirt, but he also has that printed on his uh, drinks cooler cabinets and uh, all sorts of things. And he's been featured in... Um, like um, couch surfing uh, email, uh, emails and magazines and all sorts of things. He's, he's quite globally, he's quite famous. And if I'm, I often host people who are cycle touring, and if they've been through Iran, I say, did you go, go to uh, Miran? And they go, yeah, oh, Akbar. Like, yeah, Akbar, they, they know. Um, Iran was interesting. Um, obviously, sentiment against the West was present in places, government propaganda in lots of places. This was, an, this was another guy um, from the Cycle Touring Network. A really sad story, actually. He was, he was a professional cyclist. He rode for the petrochemical team in Iran. And he'd been quite successful in Europe. He was racing in Italy. Most successful Iranian racing cyclist. He came third in a really, really big race. And he came back to Iran. And he sat down with the, um, the governing body of, of sport. And they said to him, congratulations, Iran is so proud of what you have done. He said, thank you, thank you very much. And then they said to him, but what happened afterwards? He goes, what do you mean? We have photographs of you on the podium with alcohol and women kissing you. And he said, this is the culture in Europe. When you, when you do well in a race, this is... And they banned him for six months from racing. And he said, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm going to go and live in Azerbaijan. And he's never raced since. That was the end of his... Uh, his cycling career, which was very sad. Really nice guy, really nice guy. We're starting at six o'clock in the morning on Sunday. It's going to take about an hour, I think, to get to Al-Ansab on the other side of Muscat. Uh, and then I whiz down towards Nizwa. I don't get as far as Nizwa. I turn inland, and then I cut across this road, the 33. And the plan is, you've probably heard of Dukum, the port of Dukum. That's um, five, about 550 kilometers. I will get there maybe 13 hours into the journey, so maybe about 7 o'clock at night. That's the first big goal for me. At the moment, the winds look favorable, so I should get there in good time. And then the night stretch, then I'll be heading down the coast, and this is a much quieter road. The reason I'm not going down the middle of Oman, I've driven that before, it's, it's a death trap, whether you're in a, well, especially if you're in a car, you, wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't want to be on, there in a, on that road on a, on a bicycle. Um, so I think this is a nice alternative. I've looked at these roads, I've driven a lot of these roads before. And then I was intending on taking the coast road all the way to Salalah, but looking at the um, terrain, it's, it is much hillier than if I turn inland. 
uh, and start using, using this part of the route here. And that's slightly shorter, but more than anything, it cuts out, cuts out the climbing. We're going to have um, three support cars with me. We're going to have people looking after my nutrition. We're going to have a film crew, as I said, coming down from Q8. Um, we've got two race officials. Uh, they've recently taken a test, 42 pages of rules to read through. It was quite a tough test, actually. Um, and they're both, both over here right now, Randall and Heather. So they'll, they'll be with me during the attempt. Medina will be at start. She's flying down at the end, hopefully, when I, when I get there. Um, and hopefully, if all things go to plan, we'll manage to achieve this in under two days. The schedule I'm riding to is a th just under 36-hour schedule. So it gives, me, it gives me leeway. But I need to be averaging about 34 kilometers an hour to do that. Um, I don't want to sleep. I think if I have a 10-minute stop every six hours, that's when we'll, we'll put, yeah, a bit, bit too relaxed. That's what, that's what Medina's thinking. Um, some warm, solid food. You can eat gels and, and energy bars and stuff like this, but it can make you feel very sick. So I will be using those, but a combination of the two, just to give some bulk to my stomach. And um, that, that can be one of the, the biggest limiting factors to slow you down. Um, yeah, no one's ever gone that quick. The, I, I, I heard of, I know a couple of guys in here have done it in six days. There's a guy who, who's done it um, unassisted, unsupported with panniers, also, who's also done it in six days, but no one's done it any quicker. Um, I was thinking two days originally, but then realized if I go a bit faster, it's actually going to make it a lot easier. And that might sound counterintuitive, but the most difficult part is the sleep deprivation and riding through the night. And you really do want to fall asleep. Even though your legs are going around and you're pedaling, you, you, you want to fall asleep. So if I can time this right, we start early in the morning and we finish the following evening about 6 o'clock, I've only had to, to miss one night's sleep. So that actually makes it easier. And the schedule I'm on for is about the same kind of pace as I won the, the British 24 with. This has got far, far less climbing. There's only a total of 2,500 meters. It's, it's flat deserts. And if the winds are with me, there's no reason why I can't even go quicker than that. Um, but we certainly have a, a buffer for any problems, that, anything that might happen there. So the training's done. Physically, I went out and I've done some tests recently. I'm, I'm right up there where I need to be. So it's just a case of resting, tapering, um, and just getting the last few things together. And hopefully, I'll be able to give a talk about all the exciting adventures we have through that 36 hours in, in a few weeks' time. But um, that's the ambition, and that's the plan, and I wouldn't be able to to do this without the help of, particularly of UB Caller, Medina and Heather and everyone, and Randall for volunteering to be one of the officials. So thank you all very, very much. And uh, to watch the space, it would be, be good if you could all look at the website while I'm doing it, because you can see live tracking of the ride, and there'll be a timer on there so you see where I am throughout the whole thing. So fingers crossed everything, everything goes to plan. I hope you enjoyed hearing about a few of my stories. I hope I didn't ramble on too much either. But, uh, Thank you very much for coming. Are you ready for an adventure? We thought so. We present to you the first online adventure platform in the world. You be cool. Now you can book desert camping, hiking or diving at the click of a button. If you need a cool adventure, think you be cool. For more information, check ub-cool.com This has been a UbiCool talk. You can catch us every other Wednesday of the month with an inspirational talk of famous adventures. Thank you for listening.
We'll catch you next time, explorer.